We are in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and uh, we, this is our second week studying one verse. That is how impactful, that is how filled with wondrous truth and grace this verse is. It is just, I'm so excited to be in it for a whole nother week. I love being a pastor where I can just do whatever I want and, uh, <laughs> uh, well, whatever Jesus tells me. And so I'm, I'm going to be, we're going to be, you know, spending another week studying this verse. So last week we talked about winning by losing and how Jesus, by dying on the cross, he, he took all of Satan's weapons and he broke them. So Satan used death and sin are his main weapons. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, Satan tried to put those weapons in him. And as Jesus died, he broke those weapons out of Satan's hands so he could never use them again on any child of God. And so we talked about that last week and what that meant for us, that you never have to be afraid of sin. God is never going to be angry with you. Um, oh, I need my... No, I got. I can do my text messages here. I'm going to share. I, I'm going to go off the rails here, and uh, I saw this awesome. Um, what do you call it? Like uh, on Facebook, you know when people comment. Yeah, I guess that's what you do on Facebook, right? Usually, it's ter- terrible trash and you know not much good stuff. But this week, I saw just the, a great comment. Okay, so this guy posts this on Facebook. He says, real forgiveness means the sin issue is over. Real forgiveness means there's no present or future punishment for your sins. Jesus' death satisfied God forever, and there's nothing about us that will ever anger him again. So that was the post, right? Good post. It's from his, uh, this guy, Andrew Farley's book called The Naked Gospel. And good post. I, I liked it, okay? Well, this guy gives... a a, uh, a, an opinion. He shares an opinion, and I'm going to read to you his opinion because it's very common in the church and in our world of how he would respond. Okay, I want you to hear this. He says, I believe through God's grace and most importantly, Jesus' uh, sacrifice on the cross that we are fully forgiven for past and future sins. I also believe that we must stop willful sin. I believe that willful sin does anger and or grieve God. This message, it gets very close to the feel-good Christianity, in my opinion, though I am no scholar. We can't bypass repentance just because we are forgiven. We can't take advantage of his forgiveness. We still must fear the Lord, our God, and show the utmost respect for his mercy and grace and ultimate forgiveness. I think it's certainly possible to anger God as a Christian, and to think otherwise is to forget that we are to fear him. Okay? All right? So I see what he's saying. But I'm going to read to you the response that was, that was given. He, uh, this pastor responds and says, Hey, bro, every sin is willful sin. Every sin is willful sin. I can't imagine how a person could sin without their will being involved. We choose to sin And every sin is willful. But Jesus died for our sins. All of our sins, all of our willful sins, he took them all away. Once and for all. He removed them as far as east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. Isn't that good news, guys? 
To believe that God is still angry with Christians is to say that Jesus' sacrifice is not, did not fully take away our sins. We, need, we would need a New Testament passage after the cross that says God is angry with believers, but there aren't any, only the opposite, in fact. Romans 5 says that we are saved from the anger of God and we have peace with God. The New Testament does say that we can grieve the Spirit, but grief is deep concern and not anger. Not anger. We also quench the Spirit, but this means we are not expressing Him in any given moment. Unfortunately, uh, messages about our total forgiveness in Christ and our peace with God are few and far between in our church today. It goes on from there, but I just wanted to share that with you because that's what we were talking about last night. Satan has this weapon of sin, and he makes you feel bad when you sin. And we think, yeah, I should feel bad when I sin, but God is not angry with you. It's not, maybe we should feel bad, but it's not like God is angry with you. It's his love that draws us back. It's his free grace and forgiveness that always draws us back. So that's what we talked about last week. You're like, when are we going to get to this week? Right now. All right, so today the sermon is called The Parade of Triumph. And we're in that same verse, Colossians 2.15. So let me read that verse to you. Having disarmed principalities and powers, those are demons and Satan, satanic uh, uh, beings, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, or in his death on the cross. He made a public spectacle, a triumph. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through the scripture, that you would teach us what you want us to know, and God, that you would um, encourage us deeply in your love and in our position with you, that we have been saved fully and forever, loved fully and forever, taken care of fully and forever by the wonderful, wonderful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Help us to lay down everything we're worried about and afraid of. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wrote this verse, and when he wrote this verse, Rome ruled the world. And it was, um, if there was one thing Rome knew how to do, it was how to celebrate a victory. Because they were like 500 and 0. They had won like so many wars in a row. And so they were really good at celebrating victories. By the way, what, what was the Roman Empire cut in half by? A pair of Caesars. One was good. (laughs) Okay. So Rome knew how to celebrate. You like that one? She's got a giggles going on. I love it. (laughs) Okay. So uh, when one of their generals won a victory, the highest honor that he could receive was that the Senate would declare him a triumph. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Right? They would give him one of those like flowery wreath things to wear on his head, the things we picture in 
our mind when we see Caesars. Uh, So they would set a day when they would publicly celebrate and he would get to enjoy his triumph. Basically, this was a victory parade that everybody in Rome would attend. Okay, so they would, let me give you some some things that they would do. They would open the gates of the city, just fling them right open, you know, and and it was a day of celebration. All the people would decorate their houses, you know, orange and blue or whatever. And they would crowd along the streets and there would be a parade route that they would set up and they would sit on top of their houses so that they could get a better view. And they they would make banners and paint the banners with the name of the general. Does this sound familiar? Like, we do this today all the time. We still know how to do this. They would, they would blow trumpets as the parade passed by, all kinds of trumpets. They would, uh, you know, and, and so as this, as this goes by, the warriors would pass first that, that are coming back from war, you know, still dripping in the blood of their enemies and just coming in. And, and then, um, then the star would come in, the general you know, he'd be riding on a chariot with two white horses pulling him, and he would have that crown on his head that, that, the, that the, the king, the emperor, had given him. And then chained to his chariots as he rode in triumph, chained behind him, uh, you know, as prisoners were the kings and rulers that he had conquered naked and ashamed being pulled behind him. And then all of their riches would, would be following that. There would be animals laden with all of his, uh, the booty that he had won, all of the riches. Then, then there would be the enemy's flags. They would take the enemy's flags and they would, they would hold them up as a symbol of, of who he had conquered. And then after that, they would have people following with big maps big maps. And on these maps would be drawn all the places that he went and he conquered. I crossed this river and I conquered that land and I I went up this mountain and conquered everything I could see. And there was all these maps. Guys, children would never forget these triumph days. It was the most exciting thing to happen in Rome ever. They were so excited. In fact, they would mark their lives by the years between the triumph parades. Oh, that, that, you know, I grew four inches between the triumph parades. That's how children would, would mark their ages. Kind of like I remember the 1997 Broncos parade, right, Nathan? We were standing together, hand in hand. I'm just kidding. (laughs) With tears of joy flowing as John Elway and Terrell Davis celebrated our victory. (laughs) The bloodied warriors returned. And then I remember the 2015 parade. Right? You remember that one? Okay. So, and I remember the sad years between them, the Jake Plummer years. (laughs) the Tebow years, which were fun in their own right, but not as good as Peyton Manning, the great savior that came, the general that rode in on his white horse. (laughs) Wow. John Elway. There's so many things I could say right there. Okay. 
Good memories, okay? I'm marking my life by the parades that, that I remember. Oh, and here's one other thing. Women would cast down flowers at the feet of the general as he passed by. Can you just, you got this, this parade pictured in your mind now? Okay, I've, I've gone through some effort to, to paint a picture for your imagination. This triumph parade, Paul is thinking about and talking about and referring to when he writes the verse that we are studying today. He writes this verse. It says, he made a public spectacle of them, all Satan and his demons, triumphing over them in his death on the cross, in it. Okay? Paul is talking about that. Um, How could this be Jesus? Because the image we have of Jesus is that he's dying on a cross. That's the opposite of winning. He's helpless and weak and broken. But God reveals how it really happened. And it's different. And it takes faith for you to be able to see it. Because when you just look at the cross with your eyes, your flesh, you see death and weakness. But when you look at it through your eyes of faith and not by sight, His death on the cross is magnificent, and it is powerful, and it is victorious. So bright is his victory that we need to shade our eyes this morning. Wear sunglasses if you need to. Whenever my son Jordan asks me if I've seen his sunglasses, I always say no. Have you seen my dad glasses? Okay, so we're going to talk about the triumph parade of Jesus today, and this triumph parade takes place in heaven, and the Bible talks to us about it, and it started 2,000 years ago. So let me set the scene for you. As Jesus dies on the cross, so picture him in your mind, dying on the cross. What was the last thing he said? Pop quiz, hot shot. It is finished, or into your hands, depending on what book of the Bible you're reading, what what gospel. Um, He breathes his last, and he dies on the cross. And like I said, as he dies, he breaks every weapon that Satan possessed and forever sets free all who have ever called upon him or ever will call upon him. It's done. It is finished. But, you know... um, He didn't just set free us who would come after him. He also set free in that moment all the saints of the past who believed and trusted in him. You know, I could never list them all, but there was Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and thousands more just in scripture, just not even the ones that aren't listed, who placed their faith in the coming Messiah who would be the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. So we, when we think about Jesus, which we look back to Jesus, we place our faith in something that already happened. But all these people, they were, they were before, and they had to put, look forward in faith, but it's the same thing. It's faith. They were saved by faith. We were saved by faith. How did people in the Old Testament get saved? By faith. 
Well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible says that, that we are the sons of Abraham. The Bible says all these people died in faith, and, we, and they were in a place called Abraham's bosom. Have you ever heard that term before? It means that Abraham's side. It means that they were on Abraham's team. They were next to him where he was. What does that mean? Well, Abraham was called the father of faith. Why? Because Abraham trusted in God, and that is what the picture of faith is. Are you going to trust in God? God said, Abraham, I'm going to take you. Uh, I, I want you to go to another uh, country, and I'm going to make a nation out of your descendants. And Abraham's like, okay. That's what faith is. Just say, okay. Okay, God. You said it. I believe it. Abraham was 100 years old, and then he got to be 140 years old, 120 years old, and he didn't have any kids, but he was still like, okay, God's going to make a nation out of me. But you can't have kids anymore, Abraham. Uh, that doesn't matter to faith. And that's what faith is. That's why Abraham is a picture of faith. So everyone who died with that same faith, believing that God was going to do what he said, they went with Abraham to where Abraham went. Where was that? We'll get to that in a minute. But Hebrews 11.13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, that means they grabbed them by faith, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So these guys, all the people who died before Jesus, were not in heaven yet. So where did they go? They went to a place called Abraham's bosom. Well, where is that? Well, it's actually in a place called Hades, which is the place of the dead. It's kind of like hell for good people. It's like the good side of hell. You could say that hell or Hades was divided into two sections. You had the part for bad people that died and a part for good people that died. And they're separated by a gulf. And you know what? Let's go ahead and look and study that in Luke and why, why we can say that and why it's scriptural. So Luke chapter 16, I'm going to read you the story of, uh, that Jesus tells us here. There was a certain man, a rich man, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. I don't quite know what sumptuously means, but it sounds fancy. He had shiny stuff. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So we're already learning stuff about what, what, what's going on here. When you die, angels apparently carry you to where you're supposed to go, which is good because I don't know how to get where I'm going. So I'm glad that God provides like some cool angels to take me where I'm supposed to go. So the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. That means Abraham's side, wherever Abraham is, right at his side. The rich man who also died and was buried, and being in the torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side in his bosom. 
And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Ooh, sounds crazy. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, and those from uh, there uh, cannot pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, you know what? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, you know, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. Isn't that amazing? So all the people who die in faith are waiting in this good place for what? They are waiting for the actual sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus. They're waiting for Jesus to die. Why do they have to wait? Because Satan's weapons are still against them. Remember, what are his weapons? Sin and death. That's right. Good job. So their sin, they still were sinners, right? Nobody said that they were not sinners. They were still sinners, and their sin was prohibiting them from entering heaven. So where could they go when they die? There's only one place to go, down, but it's okay because God made a safe place for them because he knew that they died in faith. So Their sin was prohibiting them from entering heaven. Why does sin do that? Because, follow this logic with me. God is perfect. God lives in heaven. So heaven is what? Perfect. And can anything not perfect go up into heaven? No. Because if something unperfect went into perfect heaven then perfect heaven is no longer, is that, does that make sense? Is that logical? Okay, so because they had sin, they could not enter heaven. So they had to wait. So what happens to these Old Testament saints who have already died when Jesus finally comes after 4,000 years of people trusting in Jesus from creation to Jesus, there's 4,000 years, And he finally comes and pays the price for their sin, and he conquers death. Well, guess what? Sin can no longer keep them out of heaven. So where do you think they're going to go? They're going to go up to heaven, right? And then death also was beaten by Jesus, so death can't keep them down where they were. Where were they? They were in death. They were dead. That's, that's the Hades is called the land of the dead. So if death can't hold them, what's going to happen? They're going to rise alive. 
they're going to be alive. Boom. They all rise and they go up. I'm going to read to you the craziest verse in the Bible. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 and 52. This is right at the second that Jesus dies on the cross. This is when Satan realizes, oh crud, I made a huge mistake. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil that was 30 or 45 feet tall and 18 inches thick of woven material is torn from top to bottom. Who do you think did that? Yeah, God, Jesus, whatever. Yes, absolutely. It was torn from top to bottom. And then the earth quaked. So there's this great earthquake. The rocks were split. The graves were open. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they were coming out of their graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to people. So the Bible literally says that when Jesus died, Moses is like, what's up, y'all? And he comes walking, and he's like high-fiving people on the streets of Jerusalem, and everyone's like, what is going on? There's an earthquake. Now dead people are rising. People's pets' heads are falling off. We have no idea what is going on. It's like, what is going on? That's right. So, this is how the parade starts. This is how the parade starts. Everyone who died in faith comes out in Jerusalem, and they're like, what's up, y'all? We're out of here. And they go right on up into heaven, and God swings open the doors of heaven, and all the angels are like, yeah. And there starts a parade, a triumph parade up in heaven. Everyone's rolling up on those streets of gold up in heaven. The angels crowding around. And every single person is singing the praises of the general who won the battle. Who's that general? Jesus. Look, we have Jude chapter 1, verse 14, which tells us what, e- what Enoch was saying. Enoch, it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. This is describing the parade that we're talking about. Jesus comes with ten thousands. That just means thousands upon thousands of his saints are with him in this parade. Look at what we see in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. And this is what they're singing in this parade. Okay, This is what all the saints who have come before us sing. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what's being chanted on the streets of gold as we, well, as as the saints who come before all start this parade. So 4,000 years worth of people, redeemed people, are 
finally at home. They're finally getting to celebrate. They're finally set free from Satan's power of death and sin. They're finally fully saved. The promise has been fulfilled. These people are his army, his people, his family, his creation, his beloved. But now, after these people all roll up into heaven, the great general of victory is now the center of attention. I bet John the Baptist, his cousin, the prophet, walks right before him because the Bible calls him the forerunner of Jesus, proclaiming his name. And then here comes Jesus. Just check out the glimpse of him in Psalm chapter 24, verse 7 through 10. It says, lift up your heads, O you gates. What gates do you think it's talking about? The gates of heaven, that's right. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be left lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? Jesus. The Lord strong and mighty. What just happened, though? He just died on the cross. But the Bible says that was his victory. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O oh, you gates, lift up your everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. That means all of heaven's armies. He's the chief. He is the king of glory. What a description of this day. Jesus rolling up like Arnold Schwarzenegger with his shirt off and the heads of his victims dragging behind him like I just love it. Such a battle warrior, right? Mm, pumped up. All right, I got another scripture to read that, that describes it. Again, we already read a little bit from Revelation chapter 1, but read the next few verses, verses 11 through 18. So Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, I want you to write in a book and send it to the seven churches in Asia and list those seven churches. And he says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man. So we're going to see now a description of what Jesus looks like in heaven. This is not meek and mild Jesus dying on the cross. This is triumphant, glorious, powerful, warrior, battle-hardened Jesus. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about his chest with a golden band. This was a like a sash that would have his titles on it. Like you see those North Korean dictators that have like 500 medals on there. They're trying to be like Jesus. Uh, his head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And I picture not like a gentle flame, but like Kylo Ren's lightsaber, like, ah, right? His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, that glowing hot metal. Uh, and his voice was as a sound of many waters, meaning he could speak every language perfectly. His, he had his right, in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, his word, the sword of the Spirit. 
and his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. Now, have you ever looked at the sun? How dare you? No, just kidding. There's a reason why we can't look at the sun, right? Because it's, yeah, it's super intense. It will blind you. It will literally kill you if you stay out in it too long. You'll get sunburns and then just get parched, and it's really gross what happens. The sun will kill you. It is so intense. And he says, that's what Jesus is like. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Of course. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? He's so incredible. You met. Okay, so the parade is happening, and everyone's like, all the people or the saints are coming by, and they're singing, Jesus loves us. We are so happy. And then Jesus comes in, and you're like, oh, you can't even survive. You're just like fainting from joy and the power and the glory of Jesus. Can you picture it? But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Why do you think Jesus mentions that? Because he's, he's like, we don't have to be afraid anymore. You are not going to die. Your body might die, but you're not going to die. You're not going to taste it for one second. Guys, I don't have to convince you that Jesus is king. I don't need to convince you. I don't have to try and prove that other ideas and other philosophies are worthless, pointless, and wrong. I don't need to even try. Because Jesus is just the most beautiful and glorious. He is a light so lovely that with all our hearts, we want to know the source of it. He is that light. He is that glory. He is that source. And he is praised and he is adored as he enters heaven in this parade. But what follows our king? What slithering and defeated monster is chained up behind Jesus? Psalm 68, 18 tells us, you have ascended on high and you have led captivity captive. Satan is led as a slave, just like he enslaved the world. He has no power to resist. And God and everyone else laughs at him. Now this parade just got awesome. Now we're having a party. Psalm 2.4 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold him in derision. And not only God is laughing at Satan, Psalm 52, 6, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Isn't this awesome? This is so awesome. Satan, who we are like, for some reason, scared of, although you don't have to be, he is going to be shown for what he really is, this wormy little defeated snake whose head has been crushed by the heel of Jesus. And we're going to laugh saying, that's the guy that scared everyone? That's the, the chief of demons that 
made everyone so afraid of death and of sin? That's the one who tricked Adam and Eve and deceived me? Oh my gosh, he is pathetic. That is how Jesus rolls in his parade. The prophecy in Genesis chapter 2 has been fulfilled. The head of that snake has been crushed. Satan's weapons of sin and death follow right behind Satan, chained to his chariot. His weapons of sin and death are held up for all to view, never to be used again in battle against God's people. This all happened 2,000 years ago, guys. And all his people celebrate his triumph with all their hearts. That's what happened. And as the years go by, since that day, for the past 2,000 years, every time a saint dies, they roll straight up into the parade. And the next step, the next breath they take after they die is on golden streets, and people are cheering for them and shouting their name, and shouting the praise of Jesus who saved them. This has happened millions of times in the past 2,000 years. Millions of times there's been a great continuation of the parade. The parade is still going. And as this parade goes, there's all these millions are casting their crowns down at the feet of the King Jesus, who has now taken his seat at the right hand of his father and sits upon a throne of grace, forever ruling and reigning. And all of us who arrive in heaven, the first moment we we get there, we fall at his feet freely, offering all of our praise to the one who gave his all to us. The perfect responsive love is what we are able to give him. We are giving him true worship when we arrive there. Each one who arrives there, Jesus has engraved in his palms your name. So you arrive, you go through the parade, and he says, who is this? Oh, yeah. It's you. And I love you. Look, I got you right here. I've had you the whole time. Right here. Each one that arrives in this parade is known personally by Jesus, and he's loved perfectly by his creator and his savior. Jesus is not ashamed of a single one, no matter what they have fallen in, No matter how they have failed, Jesus has paid for their sin, and it is gone. Nothing we've ever done will ever count against us in this heaven, for Jesus has washed us in his own blood, and we are his portion and his treasure. We are his reward for his work. He did this for his own reasons. He saved you, not because you earned it or deserved it or you were so lovely, but because he loved you. Each person is adopted as a child of God, and as an heir of his kingdom, we are all equal in value and love in his presence. And the parade is going to end someday soon. 
when the last saint gets their turn to walk on the streets of gold. And then this last trumpet is going to sound. And we are all safe with our God forever and ever, world without end. The only question we have this morning is, are we going to be in that parade? Are you going to hear those songs and see that glory? Are you going to feel that power and that victory? And are we all going to sing with one voice and with one heart the praise of the one who saved us completely? The only way you can know is, is the answer to this. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? I didn't say in. I said on. Some people say, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, just everyone believes in Jesus. They believe Jesus existed unless they're a weirdo. But do you believe on Jesus? In other words, do you place all your hope and your confidence on what he did. It's like when you take off your coat and you hang it on a hook. That is what it means to place your faith on Jesus. I have no other hope but this. And I put my hope and confidence in him. Have you committed your soul to his keeping? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like. You guys come. Father, we thank you for this text, this scripture that, that gives us a uh, glimpse into what Jesus did as he led captivity captive, as he is the, the pinnacle of this parade of triumph to celebrate his great victory. And Lord, what it has done for us, we can barely fathom, we can barely understand, uh, but you did it for us whether we understand it or not. And it's so worth it for us to spend, you know, a, a time in, in investigating and digging into your scriptures to see what it means for us. And God, I pray that we would live with the, the freedom of knowing that Sin, our sin has been washed away, that you are not angry with us. All our sins are not counted against us, but they're counted on the cross as being paid for and dealt with. And we are now your adopted children and citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we celebrate the triumph of our king even today on this earth. Our work is not yet done, and we are ambassadors and, and workers of God here on this planet. Sojourners and pilgrims that have not reached the end of our journey here, and our job is to go out and recruit as many people as possible to the grace of Jesus Christ. Spreading your love and inviting people to hear about your good, good, good work that you did on the cross. We love you because you first loved us. We live in total peace because you have given that to us and bought it for us. No one can take it away. Nothing can harm us. 
outside of your will. In Jesus' name, we praise and rejoice and sing, amen.